When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Thinks Twice edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Fusion. I have with me Jordan Weissman of Slate. Hello. We are joined by the one and only Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. She's a senior reporter, she tells me. Which Accurate. Is, which is impressive. And we are going to be talking about all manner of VC blunders. I, this, is, this is how I'm thinking about this show anyway, is that... Venture capital is famously one of those industries where you fund like 10 different things and one of them works. And we're going to start talking about some of the other nine. Um, And we are going to start talking actually about a company, Emily, which you're telling me isn't that much in the way of VC funding. It's it's more kind of even pre-VC sort of angels and crowdfunding and Kickstarter and that kind of stuff. With a whole extra layer of sexual harassment built in. <laughs> extra super layer of sexual harassment built right into the period underpants made by a company called Thinks, um, which is which was run until recently by a woman named Mickey Agrawal. Okay, so let's just stop right there. <laughs> um, period underpants? Period underpants, Felix. So back in the day, period underpants were old ratty underpants that you fished out of the back of your dresser and put on when you had your period and you know you didn't care what happened to them kind of a thing but the innovation of thinks and honestly it's not their innovation period underpants like they sell have been around for a while and other companies do sell them but their innovation was basically the underpants they're they don't stain you can wear them well they're black they're all colors. Oh, really? Um, they have some technology built into the, the crotch. Do we say crotch? <laughs> I think, oh, we I'm a say, guess. Yeah, you can say crotch on the show. Yeah. Um, and they cost around $30, which it breaks my heart as a person. What, what's the typical amount of money that you feel 
<laughs> not it, like comfortable spending on a pair of underpants. Four bucks, yeah, maybe. I feel like four is good. I don't underpants. know. I don't. I think it's a commodity product. I don't need to spend thirty dollars on underpants, but. Mickey Agarwal convinced a lot of women to spend $30 on these underpants. Um, she practices. And, she's, and she also convinced a lot of investors to mm-hmm. spend millions of dollars on crazy advertising campaigns and taking over subway stations and that yes. kind of stuff. Very successful advertising, I'd say. Um, she got into a fight famously with the New York City MTA, the subway system, over these ads that they wanted to put on subways, which were sort of, I guess, racy. Um, but well, they, no racier than anything else, really, on the subway. Well, there was just like a lot of vaginal imagery. It yes. was just like it would be like a slice of a grapefruit or like an orange. Yes. and you would look at that and go, "Is that what I think it is?" And then yes. eventually, and like, like, yeah. "Yep, that's that's what I yes. think it is." Grapefruits, runny eggs, runny were a thing. E- yeah. So, um, but those <laughs> ads went viral, and it was a beautiful thing. I mean, it was very. 20, I think it was 2015. It was very of the time. And, and Mickey Agrawal is this young, photogenic woman of color who's the CEO, who everyone's like rooting for. And she has this hot, fast growing company. And it's very feminist and out there. And all of it. And, and everyone's like, ooh, this is like sexy, awesome, new economy. Yes. Awesomeness. She, she calls herself the CEO. She makes a, you know, she's very out there. She says, I'm not like other CEOs who are all buttoned up. I'm going to say what I feel and what I mean. We're going to be super open. And um, also she wears big hats. That's just a side note. Big hats. <laughs> also talked a no lot relevance. about free bleeding. I think that got free her. Bleeding. Free bleeding. got her a lot of press. Yes. Just like not wearing a tampon. And that's something that made a lot of media outlets go, whoa. Yes. <laughs> so. I mean, she, the, the moment for this company couldn't have been better timed because it sort of ties into a bigger thing going on. Uh, people call it period feminism, where feminists just are talking more about menstruation, trying to take the shame out of it. Um, there's this woman in London who ran a marathon while free bleeding. She went viral. I mean, it's just the company was very of the moment. But as it turns out, Mickey Agrawal, there were there were problems big problems. And it goes back to her saying, you know, I'm not like other CEOs. I'm very open about everything. Well, it turns out she was way too open and you don't run a company like this. Um, She crossed a lot of lines, as we're learning this week. Um, There was a suit, a complaint filed in New York City against Mickey Agrawal from a former Thinks employee, a 26-year-old woman who had headed up PR for the company. And she details just these incredible allegations that are sort there, of there, unreal. there was boob grabbing. A lot of boob grabbing. A lot of grabbing There, there, breasts, was, there yes. was getting naked. Yeah. There's a lot. So she would like strip in front of her own employees, yes. change clothes yes. in her office, which was all glass. Yes. It was, I mean, so uh, when Felix and I were talking about the story, I think it you too, our, niche, our immediate thinking was this is just like the story of Dove Charney at American Apparel. It was famously lecherous CEO mm-hmm. um, who ran one of the hottest sort of of the moment clothing mm-hmm. brands of the early 2000s yes. and then just harassed the living shit out of everyone around him. Yes. And this was this bizarre CEO edition of, of what was happening. It right. Seems, or according to this lawsuit, at least. I mean, it's a good opportunity to bring up the fact that sexual harassment isn't the exclusive domain of men. It's mostly <laughs> women, men. Can, but women can do it too, and it's not really. I mean, with Dove Charney, he was in fact sleeping with a lot of the women who worked for him. Um, th- there's no indication that that's what was going on here. The women who worked for Mickey Agarwal in the story that's in New York Magazine that everyone should go read. It's excellent. Um, they talk about she's really doing this to sort of show her power and dominance over everyone else, like. Sh- She's doing it because she can get away with it. She's telling this 
the woman who filed the complaint, like, show us your nipple piercing um, because she can, you know, and that's not about she wants to have sex with the woman with the nipple piercing. It's about something else, I think. And is this a function of a broader, I can do whatever I like, move move fast and break things culture in the new economy, which we can trace through to any number of Silicon Valley companies from Zenefits to Uber? I'm so glad you said that, Felix, because this woman wrote a book. It wasn't called Move Fast and Break Things. It was called do cool shit. <laughs> Including <laughs> grab your employees' boobs. <laughs> you know, it'd be cool if I grabbed your chest. The and name <laughs> of her book is Do Cool Shit? Yes, that wow. is the name. Wow. Like, so you literally go up <laughs> to a correct. publisher and like, I want to write a book. And they say, what do you want to call it? I want to call the book Do Cool Shit. Yes. And they're like, really? Yeah, that's yes. the name of Wait, the book. So. And, and they're like, and we want you to do a TED Talk right away. <laughs> Because that's the vibe, right? That's right. the that's the tech bro vibe. And she co-opted it as a woman, which initially you're like, yeah, you go, girl. Which I'm sorry I said that. I just want to apologize for saying you go, girl. <laughs> that's okay. But um, It's ironic. Uh, but no, do cool shit is a bad thing. It's just, it's not cool. It's not cool. You run a company... There are some things you should do. You should have an HR department, don't you think? Well, so that's, well, that's actually yeah. so. Wait, here's the thing. Now, I think this is actually a, a big issue across startups. Is just the idea that HR and like all the rules that come with it are sort of ancillary. They're sort of a, a thing you do when you're a little bit bigger. Or right. it's or yeah, it's one of those questions. And I think this is common to all small companies, not just the fast growing VC funded ones, but especially those. Which is at what point in your hockey stick hypergrowth. do you stop take a breather and start building hr infrastructure and that kind of stuff yeah and i don't think that's something that like vcs particularly i, I is there has there ever been a vc who's like you know what i think the next stage of our growth is hr <laughs> like, is exactly that, is that something it's not something that's like prioritized because it's not something that's directly like monetizable right? right it's not going to get you to that next sale and so in a lot of I, you can see where the incentives are to keep putting that on the back burner to be like okay we need standards like there's never a point where that's going to get you up the hockey stick further and the other thing is that in a culture which valorizes founder ceos um a founder ceo has astonishing amounts of power generally um, founders nearly always have quite a lot of power. CEOs nearly always have quite a lot of power. If you have both in the same person, the company just becomes an extension of the individual, and there's almost never any kind of effective checks and balances. Not that, and and that's what's really interesting to me is like the HR department. I mean, they're not there to protect the workers; they're there to protect the founder CEO. Like any anytime you talk to a lawyer who works on sexual harassment cases, she'll say. You're having a problem. Do not go to your HR department. They're there to protect the CEO. They're there to protect the company. Um, so it's really in the founder CEO's interest to have an HR department. This isn't like some radical act. I should say, do we know for sure that they did not? I'm, I'm sure they had some version of HR. No, oh, they, no none of They at all. really didn't. <laughs> Nothing. They, they, they really didn't. And, oh. they, and they kept on asking, when are we going to get an HR department? And then she would say, you're fired. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, yes. They've been asking for like a year and a half for an HR department. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like it's kind of when you're I mean, but you can see the, the thinking on the part of a founder CEO, because if you're if your goal is to move that fast and break things or do cool shit, it kind of is a bummer to have someone whose le job it is to tell you that shit's not cool. <laughs> but, it's, but, but it's also that she was, you know, she would talk a lot about how this was a very lean company that she would 
notoriously pay her employees pretty badly. Yeah. Um, she would, it seems, really take advantage of the fact that most of her employees were women to pay them even less, and that it was only the guys who ever managed to get pay rises. Um, and you can see how, in her mind, paying a bunch of money to qualified HR people to sit around and do paperwork was not really going to be an effective use of precious liquidity. Right. Yeah. And you see in startups, too, ones that are growing fast, they might have an HR department, but they wind up doing just a lot of hiring, you know, and not a lot of the protect us from getting sued kind of work that obviously this company really was in desperate need of. So... Just to wrap this up, Mickey Agrawal is now the former CEO. She now has an um, ill-defined role at the company, but presumably she's still the biggest shareholder. Um, it does not have a CEO, but presumably it will. And somehow, I mean, what do you think, Emily? Is is the departure of Mickey Agrawal the beginning of the end for Thinks? Or is this like, do you think it can survive this crazy turmoil that it's going through? Hmm, what do I think? Um, sorry. Again, sorry. Uh, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a product. Well, there was a story in Market Watch today, thinks customers, you know, saying how disillusioned they are with the company over this. The, the problem, I think, the reason it might not survive is because it didn't, the company didn't practice what it preached. It was supposed to be a feminist company. And then it comes out that the woman leading the company treated all the women in her company very badly. Um, and the reason anyone was buying, the, anyone was spending $30 for underpants was because they were $30 feminist underpants, right? And now they're not. Like the brand is kind of off now. So you can just go and you can buy other period underpants. There's a company called Dear Kate that sells the same kind of thing. And they don't have the, the taint of the CEO making video conference calls from the bathroom, whatever. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. There's another company in the news right now, and I need to get this right off the top. Jay Parkinson is a friend of mine. I've known him for years, um, and he's like... A perfectly good guy. Whether he's an effective businessman, I really don't know. But he's a doctor. And a few years ago, he decided to start up a company called Sherpa with two A's. And this was a cool perk for New York tech types that instead of having to go through the hassle of trying to make appointments with your primary care physician every time you had a medical question or whatever – it was something much more connected and appified and you were just, it was just on your phone and you could press a button and you could take photographs and email them over and use 
Facebook to communicate or whatever was most natural to you. And you would communicate with doctors that way and they would catch things earlier and they would be friendly. And it was a little bit less sort of institutionalized and formal and stuffy. And anyway, the idea was that this was healthcare for millennials, new economy millennials who like to deal <laughs> with everything through their phones, which also saves money for the company because companies generally self-insure. And this kind of support isn't actually that expensive compared to healthcare. Yeah. And and if you there's a whole bunch of relatively simple conditions, not the super, super expensive ones, but what Jay likes his talk of as like the middle 40% of conditions, which you can e-prescribe quite easily and use actually much less doctor time. And that, anyway, it was an interesting um, idea and it got a bunch of VC funding. Um, like millions of dollars and then of VC funding <laughs> and the VCs and then the VCs broke it yeah and so this is this is and th and then it basically I mean to all intents and purposes it went to zero and um, it's fair to say I've I've done a bunch of like reading about this it is fair to say you really can blame the VCs for that just like in thinks everyone was really focused on getting as much growth as possible, that the VCs who who bought into Sherpa really wanted as much growth as possible. And they kept on saying, hire a new salesperson. You're not growing fast enough. Fire the original salesperson. Get more sales. You know, more sales, more sales. New CEO to get more sales. And all of this kind of stuff, which, you know, doesn't really work in the healthcare industry. Well, and yeah. so the, the problem was the VCs weren't healthcare specialized VCs. These were VCs accustomed to funding so, yeah, tech exactly, companies. And exactly what you were saying about, um, yes, you're absolutely right that there was something very trendy. Mm -hmm. There was a bandwagon that like consumer, ele consumer electronic, consumer webby kind of VCs jumped onto the healthcare bandwagon when it seemed cool and trendy. Um, and a lot of the healthcare VCs were looking at the valuations and staying out of those deals because they were saying this doesn't make any sense. And then the consumer VCs were like, well, we want to see like Facebook style growth. And then these companies would say, we're healthcare. We don't, can't grow that first. Yeah. So, so I think this, the, the question I have looking at this story, right, is, is this an indictment of a certain kind of VC? Of you know the, this you know Sandhill Road Silicon Valley consumer tech VC trying to what happens when they jump into a much more highly regulated slower industry and the damage they can cause or does it raise questions about what venture capital funding is good for period like that as a model like which is it which is it, or is it a little bit of both do you have to kind of question I'm, I'm not, I'm not and, sure and and we'll talk about this more in the next segment but absolutely I feel it's it's both. Um, and what happened now, and it's actually interesting we should mention regulations, because to cut a very, very long story short, and we can give you some links in the show notes, there was a bunch of tension between the founder and the shareholders, the VCs, the board members, and eventually they were like, okay, basta, enough, let's just sell this company. Jay finds a healthcare investor who's willing to buy the company for $20 million, which would have given the VCs all of their money back. Um, but the VC said no, um, because it was that dysfunctional. And eventually, they basically drove it down to zero, installed one of themselves as the temporary CEO who tried to sell it in a fire sale, failed. Um, but because it's a regulated industry, this is really interesting. And because they had a whole bunch of contracts and doctors and doctor-patient relationships, he couldn't just shut it down, because that would be illegal. Yeah. And so because of that, 
Jay was able to basically buy back the company for one dollar. He now owns it, or he doesn't own it, but he controls it. He rehired all of the people that had been fired, and now it's just being run as a normal company, which is trying to make a you know pay its employees and make a little bit of profit, which is a much more sensible way to run a healthcare company. Yeah, I think it's a real indictment of how the tech VC industry kind of works, and you see it happening all the time. I mean, the other great example is probably Theranos, right? I mean. I heard Kara Swisher talking about this on Recode, and she was like, basically, everyone in the little like tech in the tech industry in the press, everyone went crazy over Theranos, wrote these glowing articles, but at the end of the day, no one understood the business, no one understood healthcare, no one understood blood testing, and like that's going to blow up in your face. And so every time these tech people get all excited about healthcare, they think that healthcare is just like tech. Well, it's guess what? It's totally not the same thing. And yeah. and, are- and it's true that you really want VCs who understand your industry. I think this is the the real lesson that we're learning here right now. I I keep on getting emails and DMs about this new Y Combinator company, which is a um, a sexy Silicon Valley art investment company and they're trying to raise money to invest <laughs> no, in contemporary no. art and i'm like no 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 this no is and right this now is, this yeah. is like such like peak like oh god yeah. and, <laughs> and the fact is like there's a million people have tried to do art funds they have all failed it's like a really bad business but silicon valley because it's got these incredible blinders has no idea how little it knows about these well, things so i think it's like it's sort it's of arrogance well yeah. i think there's you know not all i mean a lot of them have had success a lot in kind of a variety of areas but i do think there is sort of a a fox versus hedgehog thing right like it's the old Isaiah Berlin, like you know the the fox knows lots of little things and the hedgehog knows one big thing and like silicon valley vcs i think consider them foxes they know lots of different stuff they can kind of take their skills to any industry but in reality they know tech they they are hedgehogs who know this one big world of consumer tech that's incredibly incredibly valuable but because that's been the like the industry driving so much of the economy and so much innovation they think they know they they have a wider skill set than they may actually than they actually do it's interesting that you know the company that wanted to buy sherpa or the, the fund that wanted to buy sherpa was attached to a medical center like they have a 20 year vc fund they are themselves in the industry and they have a 20 year vc fund that's meant to give companies the time to grow that's just some not something you see in the valley really it's like that that's just not that would be completely foreign to their way of doing business because I mean, because vcs by their nature, need to return their capital to their investors after seven years or so. Yeah. And healthcare just has a longer gestation period and is very complicated, as a man noted recently, who I guess we don't say his name, but he did point out that health care and health insurance are very complicated industries. We, I think we're allowed that no, who knew? Actually, apparently knew? Silicon Valley did not know how. <laughs> we're, we're one of the few. I, you know, I do think, um, though, it is, you know. I, I I feel I feel like we're kind of piling on here, but like there are different degrees of like, you know, part of this story I want to say is like I feel like Felix, you're almost underselling how crazy the details are, like of what of what like the, the like they ended up getting VC funding from SoftBank, and the SoftBank CEO just like came in and you kind of hinted at this, but like just fired everybody in one fell swoop. Oh, at one I mean, point. and and talking, I mean, there's this one bit of the uh, of Jay's. Um piece that he wrote about this where he mentions oh yeah because like he he jay brought in a ceo um who was raising a series b while also being pregnant and then the softbank uh, board member literally like to her face said well how can you 
be a new mom and a CEO and raise money at the same time. Which maybe brings us back to that other episode a few weeks ago where we talked about whether or not SoftBank throwing all this money around <laughs> U.S. venture capital was a good thing. Like, maybe you want to stay away from them. But so I think there there is some there's something a little bit exceptional here. Like, it's hard to tell how much of this is just like a really, really crazy story or and how much of it really tells like about kind of a, a deeper pathology, maybe. But, um, but I think Emily is right. There is something almost unique about healthcare yeah. that... It, you need to know what you're talking about. You and, need to actually know your subject if you're going to invest in in healthcare. And they and the VC board members would not have been upset and shocked at the rate of growth had they understood, you know, a, the sales cycle in healthcare. But they didn't understand it, and so they were shocked, and they w- did come in and start firing people and all the rest of it. Which I think also, you know, we have this question about why do some parts of the economy not get as much investment or some industries not get, you know, why don't they uh, have the same pace of innovation and whatnot? And and maybe some of that is just because the investment model we've kind of relied on for the last 20 years really is geared to a very particular set of industries. That's a great point. And and doesn't necessarily translate as well to other parts of the economy. I mean, this I mean, I'm kind of just off the top of my head, but, you know. So that's exactly what we're going to talk about in the next segment. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, Jordan. Yeah. I um, One of my favorite facts, which I pulled from a Paul Kudrowski survey, which he did, I think it must have been like three or four years ago now, but it was, I'm sure the facts haven't changed, is he looked at the top 500 or 1,000 fastest growing companies in America and looked at how many of them had VC funding. And the answer was like 10%. Wow, really? Something like that. Yeah. That We have this idea, especially in the media where, you know, everyone loves big money and big investments and exits and IPOs and all of this kind of stuff. That exactly as you just said, that we're used to this funding model where, where like, if you want to grow fast, then you need VC funding. Empirically, this is just not true. There's lots and lots and lots of ways of growing fast without VC funding. And yet the VCs keep on looking at all of these places which can birth fast growing companies and saying, we should be in there. Yeah. And so that brings us to the tale of J.D. Vance this week. Um, you may know him as the author of Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, was, he's a, you know, a Yale-educated guy who came from Appalachia, Kentucky. His memoir has been a new, uh, bestseller pretty much since it came out. It was supposed to basically explain white pain to coastal elites. He's a Trump whisperer. Yeah, he's a Trump whisperer. I have not. He's also BFF with Peter Thiel. He, he is. He w- worked at Mithril Capital. I, I don't really, I've not read the book. I hear it's good. Anyway, at some point, I'm sure I will. But anyway, why are we talking about J.D. Vance? We're not talking about Trump voters in Kentucky. We are talking instead about this new project he's on, which he is going off to Ohio to scout, you know, the great 
Midwest and the Plains of America for VC opportunities for Steve Case's fund, Revolution. Um, and the idea is that there are all these companies out because so much of venture capital is, is focused in basically California, which I think it's like 46% of it or something, and then New York um, and a few other places. You know, most of the country, I think the rest of the country pretty much gets like 20% of the VC funding out there. He's saying there's probably some missed opportunities. We should go and try to, you know, pick them up, look for them. And, but he's also kind of framing this as a, you know, path to economic renewal for the, for like, you know, Columbus or Youngstown or wherever, you know, or Cleveland. Like, there's sort of like this social mission he's also talking about. And that's where I start to get, I start to grate a little at this, part, partly for the things we were just discussing about the VC model. Well, and, I mean, yeah. Steve Case actually, well, we know he started AOL outside of the In the of middle the quarter, of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. I mean, yeah. So this has actually been his sort of passion project, apparently, for the past couple of years. I spoke to someone who worked on it with him. So he goes around to Detroit, Philadelphia, to sort of to Buffalo. Um, the person Pittsburgh. I spoke to said a lot of good things about Buffalo's resurgence. Um so, you know, he, this is something he's been doing for a while, and I guess J.D. Vance is sort of the perfect yeah. kind of showpiece to do a thing like this. And but but also, like, J.D. Vance is, is – he comes from this world of venture capital. He used to work mm-hmm. for, for Peter Thiel. And so a bit like we saw with, with Sherpa, like, they have this idea that venture equity funding is the solution to, like, problems which it clearly is not the solution to. And the, my general feeling here is that there are lots of really good companies in Ohio. There are lots of really fast-growing companies in Ohio. And there is zero reason to believe that any of them would actually be helped by giving up a large chunk of equity to Steve Case. Well, so I have, I have a question for Emily about this. Like, has You know more about what Case has been doing than I do, I think. So, I mean, has he had any big successes in this? Apparently, yes, Jordan. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know this, but Sweetgreen, do you know Sweetgreen? Yeah, they're out of DC, though. Steve Case. Yeah, but that was so what? sweet. I couldn't believe it. And then, um, and Shinola, which I had not heard of and still don't know what it is exactly, but it's a company in Detroit that makes like briefcases and other things they're, they're, that are... They're mainly a watch company, you know. but they also do yes. a bunch of like... They're, they're the classic what Shane Farrow calls TQE company. Yes. The quaint experience. And so they um, they do yes. lots of like very expensive handmade in Detroit artisanal things. I heard there for the customers, they call them Henry's. High, High earners, and is not, not rich yet. You knew about that? I was like, <laughs> "What, Henry's?" I've been dying to use the term. So, so here's the okay. So I think we have some skepticism about the degree to which venture capital <laughs> is really going to save Detroit. But the, here's the flip side of that: because you know, you, usually these stories are not about the VC people coming out to the country and trying to find companies. It's about cities that have no trying to brand themselves as like the new Silicon Valley of, you know, the Gulf Coast or the Midwest or whatever, right? And it never works. Well, it, yeah, well I mean, it worked it, for Austin. So, sort of. And like, but they also didn't like that. that Silicon Valley wasn't always Silicon Valley. Can we just say? It used to just be nowhere. That's... That, but well, no. They also had <laughs> right? they also had research university that helped feed into. <laughs> we can get into the the whole no, debate. Yeah, about there, that. You do need universities. Yes, yes, that's, sure. that's but, very yeah. obvious. And so, like the years. But anyway, usually the story is about cities trying desperately to find funding, and it doesn't work because there are actually a lot of reasons why why kind of knowledge economy type 
businesses, why, why tech firms tend to cluster in these places. And, and there have been books written about this, about how you actually, in order to have like a thriving startup scene, you just need a ton of fucking talent in one place where you can find workers from different companies who have skills and hire Jordan, across them. Jordan, like, so, this is true if what yeah. you're looking for is tech companies. This is not true if what you're looking for is Shinola. Well, and well, here's, so now this is one guy too. So they, when you get a guy who like is basically from Mithril and is from Silicon Valley going out there, he basically knows tech. So he's going out there and if he's looking for tech, if he's going to look for tech companies, he's probably not really going to be that successful finding them. At the same time, you're sending a guy out then if you're looking to look for Shinola, who has no idea how to find Shinola probably. I mean, this, this guy tried to convince me that because tech has improved so much and we have, you know, you can work remotely, it doesn't matter where you are. It's very cheap to start a company, a tech company anywhere that now is the time to do this. And, you and can have tech there, companies there is. So if we keep it to tech for the time being, that's, I'd say, true and false. That we have seen Berlin become a massive tech hub from nothing in the past few years. Um, Stockholm is a massive tech hub from nothing in the past few years. It is possible to create a tech hub from nothing in, the, in, in a relatively short amount of time. But like number one, it needs to be a tech hub, as Jordan says. Like you can't just find, you can't found an individual company. You need a, an ecosystem there. And number two, it only happens in cool cities with lots of where lots of cool young tech bros want to hang out. And there are lots of reasons why you'd want to live in Berlin. There are like no reasons why, given the choice, you'd rather live in Columbus, Ohio. Right, and and Appalachia, which is sort of like the place J.D. Vance sort of makes his name with. Like, there's never going to be a tech resurgence in Appalachia. Like, that's uh, not happening. You don't count up Morgantown, West Virginia quite yet. But no, no, I mean, you're right. <laughs> it's like, I mean, Rust Belt cities are cool, but I think there's limits. My, I mean, my feeling is that he's not really looking for tech. My feeling is that he's looking for, you know, industrial companies, which America's always been good at building and growing and a lot of them can grow fast and I think they do exist in Ohio and mm -hmm. I think that the Ohio will create a bunch of successful companies just like North Texas is creating a huge number of successful companies and is making you know there's a, a vast amount of economic activity and growth there I just don't think that those kind of industries lend themselves to VC funding. I think that it's much easier and more sensible for the founders of those companies to get good old-fashioned bank loans. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's have a numbers round. I, I, I'm going to start because it just occurred to me that the perfect number for this round would be 149,999,999. I can't which, even keep track of that number in my head. Which it's is gone. the number of dollars that Rupert Murdoch lost on his Theranos investment. Rupert Murdoch, that famous... Um, healthcare expert <laughs> invested $125 million in Theranos and then sold all of his shares back to the company for $1. Emily, what's your number? My number is six. 
Six is the number of weeks off Starbucks will give its female baristas if they literally give birth to a child, um, it, which is nice. Everyone agrees this is nice. But the problem is if you work in Starbucks corporate office, the number is 18. That is how many weeks off you get if you're a woman working in Starbucks corporate office and give birth to a child. Um, but, so, but, but corporate children are that much more fragile. The babies are worth more, and that is why they get three times as much time with their mothers is the only explanation I could come I, up I with. I mean, makes sense to me. Right. Jordan? So my number is uh, $5.4 billion. This is not a VC blooper. It's just like a regular old banking blooper. Uh, it's Germany's state-owned development bank, KFW, um, which... Apparently, it just transferred about 5 billion euros to the wrong banks. And this is something it's done before. Like, <laughs> it's just like a technical glitch. They just like sent the money to the wrong place. Like, well, it's like, Germany. They'll get it back. I mean, sure. But like so much for German efficiency, right? What happened? <laughs> but more importantly, we have the one and only Kathy O'Neill with her number because she can leave, but she can't really leave. Hi, this is Kathy. I miss you guys. I have a number for this week. It's $4 million Canadian, and it comes from, if you remember, the sex toy maker WeVibe, um, which has agreed to pay out that much money um, after admitting that it's tracking the owner's use of the vibrator that could be turned off and on remotely, and <laughs> which the data of that vibrator was sent back to the company. It turns out that people don't like it when their vibrator's data is sent back to companies without their really understanding. <laughs> it also turns out that other people in the vicinity could actually remote control use their vibrators. So that was also a kind of an embarrassment. Anyway, $4 million Canadian, I think it's something we talked about. So we should really keep up on this and um, see you guys. Um, so yeah, Mickey Agrawal, if you're listening to this, it could be worse. <laughs> Um, okay, so I think I think that's it. That's our numbers. That's our segment. Thank you very much to Emily Peck, senior reporter at Huffington Post, and all round just you know interesting person. Um, thank you to Zach Dynastine and all the other panoply types who are involved in the production here of the June Thomas and Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers and I'm sure there are more um, check out all of those Panoply shows at panoply.fm and we will be raising a glass to you next week on Slate Money Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.